Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. This show is brought to you by Priya Pickups. What you want, what you need, and what you love. Check them out at priapickups.com. And if you want to support the No Sleep Till Sudbury podcast on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash Music for details. And also, once again, I'm available for music-based speaking engagements. For more information on that, visit brentjensenmusic.com or email info at brentjensenmusic.com. Last episode, we talked about the untimely passing of Foo Fighters drummer Taylor Hawkins. I thought a lot about how tragic it was that Hawkins died at such a young age, and I got to thinking about the people that he left behind. I thought a lot about Dave Grohl. What about Dave Grohl? Dave Grohl appears to lead a pretty incredible life. But he's also had his share of heartbreaking tragedies to navigate, too. We all know about the loss of his Nirvana bandmate and close friend Kurt Cobain, and now Hawkins. But Grohl also suffered through the death of his childhood friend Jimmy Swanson from an overdose in 2008. In June 2011, Grohl revealed that he has tinnitus and is mostly deaf in his left ear due to decades of performances. Earlier this year, he disclosed that he's been reading lips for almost 20 years, a situation made more difficult by the pandemic and the need for people to wear masks. As we paid tribute to Taylor Hawkins' last episode, and previously to Kurt Cobain in No Sleep Till Sudbury episode 171, this week I wanted to turn my attentions to Dave Grohl and celebrate an individual who, despite being faced with some tremendously heartbreaking situations, has managed to push on and fly his flag with the passion few others have. David Eric Grohl was born on January 14, 1969, in an Ohio town called Warren. His family moved to Springfield, Virginia when he was still a child. When he was seven years old, his mom and his father divorced, and he was raised by his mother. Grohl took an interest in guitar when he was 12, and after taking a handful of lessons, he decided he would teach himself how to play. During this time, he was developing a taste for darker, faster music, while still having an appreciation for artists like David Bowie and Susie and the Banshees. Grohl got his first taste of punk a year later, while attending a Naked Ray Gun show in Chicago, his first concert. From that night on, he considered himself a punk and focused solely on that genre. He loved bands like Bad Brains and Circle Jerks, playing them incessantly, even managing to sneak them into the morning announcements he was responsible for as the vice president of his high school student council. Grohl bounced around schools as a teenager, transferring from Springfield to Alexandria to Annandale based on bad grades attributed to his fondness for marijuana. During this time, Grohl played guitar in a few different bands, including one named Freak Baby. He was also teaching himself how to play the drums at this time, and when Freak Baby changed its lineup, as well as its name, to Mission Impossible, Grohl switched from guitar to drums. As he did with guitar, Grohl shrugged off drum lessons in favor of teaching himself. He did this by playing along to punk records. He also listened to Rush, being immediately influenced by Rush drummer Neil Peart. Rush's 2112 album was said to have changed the direction of Grohl's life when he was eight years old, after having listened intently to the drum tracks on that record. 
As he developed his drum chops, Grohl also paid a lot of attention to Led Zeppelin's John Bonham, later citing Bonham as his greatest influence. To prove it, Grohl had Bonham's symbol from Zeppelin's fourth album, The Three Rings, tattooed on his shoulder. Following the breakup of Mission Impossible, Grohl considered joining shock rock group Gwar for a brief period, as they were looking for a drummer. He eventually joined Washington, D.C. band Scream when he was 17. He had to lie about his age to be brought in, but when he was, he quit high school and toured the world for the next four years. When Scream played Toronto on their 1987 tour, Grohl and the rest of the band were waiting outside the Elma Combo in their van a couple hours before their scheduled gig. A man approached the van and knocked on the window. The man asked, Who's the drummer? Grohl thought he was in trouble for something, his mind racing through the events of the last couple days. As it turned out, Iggy Pop was playing a CD release party held at the Elmo and needed a drummer. Grohl was a big fan and he knew all the songs. He went inside to find Iggy on stage by himself with a guitar. Iggy asked Grohl if he was familiar with the material. Grohl told him yes. The two of them ran through a couple of songs together and Grohl ended up playing the full set as the drummer of Iggy Pop's band. Not long after, Grohl was back in Scream's Rust Bucket van, off to their next gig. The band broke up mid-tour, three years later. Right before that breakup, however, Grohl became friends with the Melvins, in particular Melvins guitarist Buzz Osborne. Osborne turned up at a Scream show on the West Coast one evening with a couple of his friends, two fellow musicians from a Seattle band called Nirvana. Grohl had heard of them and had in fact seen Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic on the cover of their Bleach record. But as they stood in front of him that night, he wasn't sure it was actually them. He claimed they looked far less menacing in person. Osborne told Grohl that Nirvana was looking for a drummer and provided him with the phone numbers of Cobain and Novoselic. They invited him to Seattle to audition, and he became Nirvana's drummer shortly after. The band had already recorded several demos for their next record with producer Butch Vig, prior to Grohl joining. In the spring of 1991, the band entered into the building that was the subject of Grohl's 2013 documentary, L.A.'s Sound City Studios. They would record Nevermind there, an album that would change the face of popular music. Around the same time Grohl was recording his own material, and in 1992, he decided to release it on an indie label called Simple Machines. It was called Pocket Watch. And rather than use his real name, Grohl released the material under the pseudonym Late. One of the songs that appeared on the Pocket Watch cassette was a number he worked on with Cobain called Color Pictures of a Marigold. During Nirvana's In Utero sessions, they re-recorded Color Pictures of a Marigold, and released it as a B-side on the heart-shaped box single, simply titled Marigold. Grohl also contributed the main guitar riff for Scentless Apprentice, a riff that Cobain publicly admitted he didn't care for much at first, but later changed his mind, adding that he was excited about Grohl contributing more to Nirvana's songwriting. The band booked session time at Robert Lang Studios in Seattle to work on demos prior to the European leg 
of their upcoming 1994 tour. When Cobain failed to show up, Grohl worked on his own songs. He and Novoselic completed a number of future Foo Fighters tracks, including Big Me, February Stars, Butterflies, and Exhausted. When Cobain finally turned up three days later, Nirvana recorded a demo for You Know You're Right. It would be their last. On April 8, 1994, Kurt Cobain was found dead in his home. In his book, The Storyteller, Tales of Life and Music, Grohl wrote that he was advised of Cobain dying twice, once at the beginning of March, and then a second time the following month. He received the first call on March 3rd, informing him that the New York Post was reporting Cobain had overdosed at a hotel in Rome. Grohl claimed he dropped the phone as his knees gave out, and he fell to the floor, covering his face with his hands as he cried. Shortly after, he received a second call to say Cobain was still alive and that he would likely survive the overdose. A little over a month after what Grohl described as the darkest day of his life, he went through the same ordeal again. But this time, Cobain was really gone. Nirvana disbanded immediately after Cobain's death. For almost two decades after, Grohl would find himself entangled in a vicious public dispute with Cobain's widow, whole singer Courtney Love. Love designated herself the sole guardian of Cobain's artistic legacy, and that included the financial aspects of said legacy. Seven years after Cobain's death, Love sued Grohl over the control of Nirvana's material. Grohl and Novoselic countersued, claiming Love's litigation was not to protect Cobain's legacy, but instead to further her own gains in light of a waning recording and acting career. Things got really ugly when Love attempted to block the release of previously unreleased Nirvana material. The dispute was ultimately settled by the time Nirvana was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, however, with Grohl and Love even giving each other a hug at the ceremony. Following Cobain's death in 1994, Grohl received several offers to join other bands, but he declined them all saying it reminded him of being in Nirvana too much, and that he could barely sit down at a drum kit as a result. Grohl was heartbroken and completely devastated by Cobain's death. It compelled him to avoid playing music for months. Eventually, towards the end of 1994, Grohl played briefly with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, including a Saturday Night Live performance with the band. He declined an invitation from Tom to become his permanent drummer around that time, also having played a number of shows with Pearl Jam in Australia in March of 1995, as people buzzed about the possibility that he may join that band. But former Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer Jack Irons eventually settled in there, and Grohl now had plans of his own. Just before he had begun playing again with Tom Petty, Grohl had recorded a demo reel of 15 songs at Robert Lang Studios in October of 1994, playing virtually all the instruments himself. The initial plan was to release the music anonymously, once again under a pseudonym. Grohl's demo generated a lot of major label interest, however, 
He eventually signed with Capitol Records as a result of being persuaded there by Nirvana's old A&R rep, Jerry Gersh, who was now president of Capitol Records. Grohl chose to form a band rather than embark on a solo career or release the material anonymously. He and Novoselic agreed that Novoselic would not join the band, as it would have placed too much pressure on both of them. Rather than re-record Grohl's demo, it was simply mixed for release as the Foo Fighters' debut album in July 1995. Grohl named his new band after the nickname that World War II aircraft pilots had given UFOs they claimed to have seen in the skies around them. Grohl said much later that had he known this new band would be as successful as it was, he would have come up with a better name. In May 1997, drummer Taylor Hawkins would join the Foos, cultivating a close, brotherly relationship with Grohl over the following 25 years that would lead up to his unfortunate and untimely passing last month. And just like that, once again, Dave Grohl would lose someone very, very close to him. In his book, Grohl described his perspectives on mourning in this way. You don't choose your family, but you do choose your friends. And that almost makes it hurt more. I mean, it's all a mystery, and there's no textbook. There's no instruction manual on how to mourn. But when I think about that short period of time, it's not even days or weeks or years. It's just, that was a lifetime. And then I had to start another one. As bad as it could be, it was the music, at the end of the day, that kept you alive. And that helped you survive the darker moments. The No Sleep Till Sudbury podcast wishes Dave Grohl comfort and sincere condolences during these dark moments, and looks forward to his return. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.